Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. We are often called the servants of God, but we are also friends with Christ. What is the distinction between being a servant and being a friend? Does our position change now that we're friends? You're listening to Friendship with God by Reverend Christy Mannion. This morning, we're stepping away from our three-part series on some of the general letters in the New Testament to, excuse me, to focus instead on um, John chapter 15, where the themes verse for gems this year comes from. So let's read that together. John chapter 15, verses 9 to 17. It's on page 1677, if you're here in the sanctuary and you have a Bible in the pew. Jesus is speaking to the disciples, and he says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands, and I remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. Because everything I've heard from the Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. This is the word of the Lord. As I was living with this passage this week, I thought of a song from the year 1966. The Grammy Award for Best Contemporary Vocal Performance went to Paul McCartney for a song that was very different from the feel-good music of that time. It was set in a minor key, and it wove together relentless rhythms and surprising intervals, and the stringed instruments seemed to sigh along with the lyrics. Ah, look at all the lonely people. Where do they all come from? All the lonely people. Where do they all belong? And so through Eleanor Rigby, the Beatles held up a mirror to human mortality and to loneliness in a way that was unexpected for pop music of that time. And while the song reflected these painful realities for Eleanor Rigby and Father McKenzie, the characters in the song, the power of the song lay in the way that it shone a light on the loneliness of the people who heard it. I can remember half a lifetime ago, standing in the back of a crowded church sanctuary after worship, and 
the ache in my chest and the tears that were just right at the forefront. I had just graduated from college and I was sorely missing those friends that had become my lifeline for four years. And I barely kept it together and the dam burst after worship. And so my soul and my tears poured out together as I talked with an acquaintance, a woman that I hoped might actually become a new friend. And so she listened very gently and very kindly as my words came out between sniffs and sobs, and very awkwardly, I tried to invite her out for coffee. I'm doing okay. I mean, I have a job, and Josh is fine. Things are good, but I'm just really missing my people. Would you like to get coffee sometime? That coffee date never happened, and I can't blame the person that I invited. It was painful and embarrassing. And I need, I need that painful and embarrassing memory. I need it to stay alive because it helps me to remember what it's like to not have people. And my guess is that many of us have been there at some time or another. And maybe even you're there today. There's an eighth grader who has changed schools, a hard thing to do in a pandemic year. He doesn't really need too many friends, and he's certainly not crying about missing the ones he left at night. But he'd sure like to have a couple of guys show him where the robotics club meets or invite him to a track meet. Or I think of the grandparents who are reestablishing life in a new place so that they can be closer to kids and grandkids and the community that they've left behind, they didn't realize how hard it would be sitting on the sideline of a grandchild soccer game to make new connections. Happens a little more naturally when it's your student out on the field, a little harder when it's your grandchild. So who are their people now and how do they find them? For all those lonely people, what difference does it make that Jesus calls his disciples and us his friends. Well, let's hold on to that question while we look a little bit more carefully at these verses in John. First, Jesus is reminding the disciples and us today that their friendship with him begins and ends utterly with his initiative, his love that reaches out to look for them. 44 times in the 27 verses of John chapter 15, Jesus speaks from a first-person personal pronoun place. He says, I, me, mine, my. And in fact, several of the verses that we're looking at in 9 through 17 even include extra, unnecessary pronouns in Greek. So verse 9 says, Just as the Father has loved me, so I, I have loved you. Extra, I. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Verse 14, extra, I. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. 
In each one of those phrases, the verbs for loved and command and chose all supply a subject right on their own. But John, remembering what Jesus has said and including that, writing it down for us, includes that subjective first person I right up front. He draws attention to Jesus as the one who has reached out, making the first move to bring the disciples home in his love. It's as if Jesus is saying, I myself, I myself have loved you. I myself command you. I myself am choosing you. And so Jesus begins the friendship with the disciples and with us too. He moves toward us so that he can seek us out and invites us to make our home in him. Second, what is the deal with Jesus drawing a distinction between calling the disciples servants and calling them friends? Well, by changing that designation, Jesus is inviting his disciples closer to his heart than before. Verse 15 says, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. A servant doesn't know his master's business. And if you're reading alertly and you see that no longer at the beginning of that verse, that begs a question. When and how did Jesus call his followers servants before? Well, just hours earlier, Jesus had taken the place of a servant himself. He had gotten up after the evening meal. He had gotten some water. He had bent down and scrubbed feet. And he had told the disciples to go and do things like he was doing them. And in chapter 13 there, he said to them, very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master. No messenger is greater than the one who sent him. And so as Jesus tells the disciples to serve in the kinds of ways that he serves, to do the kinds of things that he does, he is in the place of the master and the sender. He's going to encourage them to go and do likewise, to become servant messengers of his work in the world. If we zoom even farther back in the history of God's interactions with his people, think of how often the word servant shows up in the Old Testament. It's an awful lot. In all kinds of different uses, it shows up 700 times. Being known as a servant of the Lord was even a title that was given to people of standing in the Israelite community, people like Moses and people like David. People like Joshua were esteemed as servants of the Lord. But by comparison, the word for friend or companion shows up fewer than 200 times in that Old Testament and I was hard-pressed to think of a time in the Old Testament when God calls his people friends. The closest thing I could come up with was when the Lord speaks to Moses, and in Exodus, verse 33 says, the Lord was speaking to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend, just by comparison. So a servant carries out the plans of someone who's above them, 
They're told to do something, and they go and do it. They get it done, and that's that. They don't have access to the boss's long-range plans. They're not in on her deliberations or decisions. Most of all, they certainly don't have access to that person's heart. But as friends, Jesus says to the disciples, I love you so much. I'm going to lay down my life for you. I want the Father's love to live in you too. I want it this much. You are no longer servants. Now you are friends. I'm not keeping you in the dark about my intentions. You're in on the whole plan. Jesus is the word who was there in the beginning. He spoke creation into being. And he certainly has every right to continue to treat his followers to command them to do things. He's got every right. But Jesus invites them into something else, something more and something better. They're friends. Friends who share the intimacy that he has with the Father, friends into whom he pours the Father's love. So third... As dearly loved friends, what are Jesus' followers supposed to do? Well, he tells them, remain, stay, make your home in my love. Dale Bruner is a leading contemporary scholar of Matthew and of John. He translates John 15, 9, and 10 this way. Just as much as the Father has loved me, there... That's how much I have loved you. Make your home in this special love of mine and relax. When you want to keep my commands, you will be making your home in my love. I thought about that picture of making our home in God's love throughout the week. I thought about settling into it, relaxing and being at peace in the security that we have. I thought about what it's like to begin recognizing little bit by little bit, ever so slowly over the course of many years of walking with Jesus, that you're being given a new heart that wants to be and do what God wants. And an untranslatable Dutch word that I learned from people in this community not long after I came to La Grave came to mind. I'm not Dutch, or only a teensy little bit, maybe, and I don't speak Dutch, so this could be interesting. But here goes. The word I'm thinking about is kaselig. As I understand it, the word kaselig conjures up multidimensional wonderfulness all in one word. It's at once homey and cozy, and fun, and relaxed, and warm, and life-giving, and restorative, and a place for learning. A place or a person who is gezellig is a place or a person you never want to leave. So when we think of remaining or making our home in the love of Jesus Christ, the picture is not of us standing far off, waiting for a jangling bell that will summon us to the tasks of the day. No. The picture of remaining 
is coming close. It's a picture of welcome and comfort and acceptance and rest and equipping for God's purposes forever and ever. Amen. It's a picture of the front door that flings open the minute your tires hit the driveway. You're home. So glad to see you, your Lord says. It's your shoes kicked off on the front rug. It's a roaring fire on a cold night in a cool drink in the heat of summer. You can never wear out your welcome. You can never, never need to be shy or embarrassed because your Lord's love has washed you clean and made you worthy to be in his presence, washed away all of the sin and all of the self-consciousness. And as you spend time remaining together, Jesus, your master and friend, hears you you start learning how to hear him. His concerns become the concerns of your own heart so that before you know it, you start to think and talk and act and be in step with his holy purposes for the world. Even your prayers begin to change. Please, Lord, bless what I'm doing becomes instead, Lord, Help me to do the kinds of things that you are pleased to bless. Help me to be like you. Help me to live in loving service. Help me wisely to give myself away for the sake of showing you to others. And this kind of a relationship, although commands aren't out of place, wouldn't be out of place, they're hardly needed. Professor and pastor Scott Jose says it this way. You don't come up to some surly, self-centered narcissist of a human being and command that that person start living like Mother Teresa. Jesus' words in John 15 make sense only if, as a matter of fact, you are already a branch living off the true vine that just is Jesus. You're going to have the sap of Jesus flowing through you already because only that is what bends your life into the kind of shape and makes you into the kind of person who already has such a fundamentally Christ-like attitude that a command to love even makes sense. So back to the original question. What difference does it make that Jesus is the friend of the lonely young adult or the eighth grade transfer student or the transplanted grandparents. Certainly, certainly Jesus' friendship makes an enormous difference for the eternal future. Certainly it makes a difference that we have his heart and his ear and we can talk to him at any moment. But I'm also wondering about the lived reality of how we come to know that kind of friendship. Right now, right here, Jesus' friendship makes an enormous difference for those who are welcomed into friendship by others who are themselves also steeped in the love of Christ. Jesus calls his disciples friends so that those friends who are welcomed into that life-giving love now become the kind of people who share that friendship with others. We can all know in our heads 
that Jesus is our friend. But we experience Jesus as our friend when the fellowship of his friends befriend us. His friends invite us in. They make space for us to belong. They welcome us to make ourselves at home among them as they gather and as they learn and as they learn how to love him more. I know some of you will hear this and you will say, that is a beautiful picture, Christy. I've experienced a friendship like that that has made room for me. And that's even the kind of friend of Jesus that I'm trying to be. But my relational plate is heaped and it is spilling over. Parenting kids, caring for a parent, trying to hold down a job, trying to invest a few minutes of myself into a few significant people in my life. And I'm counting myself fortunate to get my teeth brushed every day. You're saying that I should be more available to other people? That's a question that I don't have a right to answer for you. That's where remaining, making our home in Jesus, comes in for each one of us. We're all human, and to be human is to be finite. We have different paces, different capacities, different strengths, different relational expectations. So as we make our home in Jesus' love, individually, we simply ask him to help us be attentive, help us pay attention, to open our eyes to where he'd like us individually to be investing his love We ask him to help us follow into relationships with people that he leads us to with wisdom, with courage. Sometimes, sometimes we'll overreach. We'll get tired out. Sometimes we'll underextend. The seasons of our lives will change. But abiding in Jesus just means that our heads are up and our eyes are alert for the people that the Spirit brings into our lives. It means we're looking to bless as we have been blessed, to allow the life-giving love of our Lord to flow out from him to us, to others. And all of this comes from the life-giving well, unlimited well of the love of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Lord, you see us and you hear us and you know us by name. We're so thankful that you have made your home in us and invite us to do the same. Give us your eyes. Give us your ears. Give us your heart and your hands. Give us great wisdom as we look at our lives and we look at um, your call to us. Help us to follow you with joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.